You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Didn't you coach Burt Reynolds? Yes, I did. Was he any good? He was a defensive back. I know. Was he any good? I said. 103.9 FM LI News Radio presents the Weekend Crunch with Errol Marks and Speedy Petey. Wee! Are back, ladies and gentlemen. We are the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Week two, we are back, ladies and gentlemen, from our vacation. And why not get into all the stories in sports? But before we get into that, Speedy, how are we doing today? I'm doing all right. I just want to give a couple shout outs. Shout out to actually two family members on different sides of the family that have birthdays today. My cousin Alexander. today. He turns 19 today. And my uncle, my mother's brother. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Also, a shout out to all the fathers celebrating Father's Day tomorrow. That's right. My father is gone. He passed away six years ago. It's a day that I would absolutely love to spend with my father, but being that he's not here on this earth, I'm going to spend it with my family and my girlfriend but when you have a father and you have a mother that are on this earth still cherish the moments that you do have with them because you don't know when will be the last so happy father's day to all the fathers out there that everybody cherishes throughout the country and throughout the world we have a great show lined up for you guys tonight our special guest we will be talking to co-founder of pros and joe's charity league eric romoff he is a fantasy guru aka nfl we're gonna get everything into the nfl quality conversation with him and he will go in the ins and the outs of fantasy football and will go throughout the NFL league and his thoughts of some of the moves this offseason. So we will talk football with him. We'll get into the Rangers getting eliminated from the Lightning in the Easter Conference Championship as every Ranger fan want to blame the Wefuee. We will get into the Rangers series against the Lightning and the Lightning versus the Avalanche at the Stanley Cup Finals. We will get into basketball as the Golden State Warriors, and I call them Warriors because warning, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green win their fourth championship as they believe they're the dynasty of this era. We will get into Steph Curry and his MVP. Not surprised he won it, even though I thought Andrew Wiggins was the best player in that series. We'll get into the Yankees and the Mets. The hot, scolding hot New York Yankees and that pitching staff. Not only their bullpen, but that starting pitching staff is the best in baseball right now, and they've just been dominating at home. They haven't lost a home game in like 16 games. It is absolutely ridiculous. This is one of the best runs we've seen a Yankee team have in the last 30 years, and that's saying a lot when the Yankees have been a winning organization for the last 30 years. The Mets are playing great baseball as well, knocking off the Milwaukee Brewers over the week. Pete Alonso hitting the seams off the ball. Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom will be back very, very soon. Max could be back in a week. Jacob DeGrom could be back in two to three weeks. So if you're a Mets fan, you should be very excited about that. We have Moneyline Mania with Chaz and the boys. They're dominating. If you're not listening to this segment, you should. They're the best handicappers in the country. If you guys want to win money, if you're a betting man, must listen to Moneyline Mania. And then crunch time as always. Let's get into some hockey conversation. And I am not a Ranger fan. A lot of Ranger fans sit here making excuse after excuse after excuse. Some Rangers think Toronto is the reason why the Rangers didn't come out of this series. Not the Toronto Maple Leafs. Toronto where the new NHL headquarters is. We could go back and forth 
forth on why the Rangers lost this series. Maybe they just thought after going up 2-0 that this series was over. And they really slowed down and made the Lightning feel that they can come back in this series. Or maybe it was their defense in Game 3, up 2-0, going into the third period, believe that they're not as good as they thought they were throughout the season, being that they were ranked second in all of hockey behind the Carolina Hurricanes in goals against. Or was it Shesterkin, who a lot of people believe played so well against Carolina, which the last three games that he did, and in the Lightning series, where all the Ranger fans think that he was just absolutely fabulous, he choked in Game 5 and 6, which possibly could have cost them this series. You look at this series, and I know a lot of people will quote what I have said, that I thought that the Rangers had a good season, but teams always hit a bump in the playoffs, being that they're the youngest team still in the playoffs. Connor McDavid and that Edmonton Oilers team going to the Western Conference Finals. The Avalanche, which is a young team, going to the Western Conference Finals. And a very veteran team like Tampa playing against the New York Rangers that have been to -to back-to-back Stanley Cup Finals and won both Stanley Cup Finals. But I don't even think that's what it was. What I think happened to the New York Rangers is just like I say about the Ranger fans, they all believe that the league is in cahoots with why they lost. The referees, or what some of our fans say, referees, gave the series to the Tampa Bay Lightning. That the NHL wanted the Tampa Bay Lightning in the Stanley Cup Finals. But not the fact that Vasilevsky, who had a hideous first two games in the Eastern Conference Finals, finally figured things out. Maybe got his legs under him. If nobody thinks that Vasilevsky is one of the greatest goaltenders of this era, then I don't know what you're watching. What we saw in this series is that a veteran team like Tampa, who's been in this for the last two years, understands how to win the close games. Veterans like Steven Stamkos and Kucherov and Hedman and Vasilevsky, four core pieces what this team has built over the last 10 years have shown why they're amongst the elite in the NHL. And the Rangers have a good future. If that's what the Ranger fans want to bank on right now, we have a great future. We've got a good young player like Adam Fox, who's already a star. We have arguably the best goaltender in the NHL right now in Igor Shosturkin. And by the way, screaming Igor is better when Vasilevsky's in the series made absolutely no sense. Because Igor has done nothing yet. He's not won a Stanley Cup. He is not Henrik Lundqvist. I have no idea why anybody is taking shots, including the Ranger fans, on Vasilevsky, who has been as good a goaltender as Lundqvist or any goalie we have seen in the last 10 years. He's on a trajectory right now already with the six years he's played on a Hall of Fame pace, especially with the third Stanley Cup. He's a Hall of Famer. If he were to retire today, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, his playoff numbers have been insane and the Ranger fans at Madison Square Garden in Game 2 chanting that it's only going to fire him up and he played fantastic outside of probably that one soft goal he allowed against Ryan Lindgren. None of the other goals he allowed were bad. He was making some fantastic saves. Going back to the Toronto thing, which was pretty funny. The only thing you could blame Toronto for, Major fans is their hockey team blowing a 3-2 lead against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Mm-hmm. So maybe if they win that series, they could beat Florida or Toronto in that Eastern Conference Finals. But we can't play hypotheticals here. Whoever's blaming the referees for that, the second goal was a goal. Unfortunately, it was kind of sloppy at first on the live play. You couldn't tell what was going on. But the puck went out of Shesterkin's glove after he made the initial save, and then Stamkos clied into him. Goalie interference is when you impede the goalie of making a save. He made the save already. He just could not hold on to it in his glove. Then it hit off of Stamkos 
Demko's leg and went into the net. That's not goalie interference. No blaming the referees for that. I think the refereeing in that game was iffy for both sides, but I don't think it was necessarily unfair for the Tampa Bay Lightning. I don't think the conspiracy theory of they're trying to rig it for the Lightning makes a lot of sense either. The league prides themselves on parity for one. Number Mm -hmm. two, they'd love to have a flashy young underdog team like the Rangers, a young team from New New York. York. I don't necessarily believe that kind of thing. The Lightning are popular, sure, but they're older. Fans are sick of them at this point, winning back-to-back Stanley Cups. A lot of the young players they got that led them the way got traded, and the older players, yes, they played well at certain points in the playoffs, but they're not the same flashy speed team that they used to be. Now, they're still very skilled. They're still very good with stick handling and passing creatively in that system, which has been very good. But the Lightning as a raw speed team, they're not the same as they were even three years ago. In terms of the actual game six, the Rangers, I think, just played horribly as a whole. They barely possessed the puck. And they're lucky that game was as close as they were. Shesterkin, he actually played well and made a lot of tough saves, but did allow a soft goal. And that ends up being the costly thing. But I think he kept them in that game. The Lightning, it looked like, possessed the puck two-thirds of the time in the first period. And then it seemed like for much of the game, their forecheck was just dominating the Rangers. And their defense never made adjustments. Their offense really struggled the last couple games of that series. And that's what cost the Rangers in the end. Back to back to back years, a New York team has gone to the Eastern Conference Finals. And all three times... They were eliminated. I'm an Islander fan. The Islanders, I could say, were cheated in Game 7 last year. There were seven men on the ice on a shorthanded, on a power play for the Islanders. There were seven men on the ice for the Tampa Bay Lightning. They scored a shorthanded goal, and that was the game winner. And I think it was in the second period. The Islanders couldn't score a goal, but you could say they got screwed. The Islanders had a chance in the third period to score and take it to overtime. They couldn't. That's good goaltending. That's good defense. To sit here today and say it's because of Toronto on why the Islanders didn't win the Stanley Cup against Montreal last year is crazy. Off the ice, that fan, that 29-year-old Staten Island kid that knocked out that Lightning fan, that was horrible. That doesn't look good for New Yorkers. That doesn't look good for Ranger fans. That doesn't look good for the NHL. That right now is a growing sport. Especially here in New York. And we wonder, what are some of these fans thinking after a game? Why isn't there enough security at these events? At Madison Square Garden? At the Nassau Coliseum? At the Barclays Center? At the USB Arena? Seeing something like this at a major event has to make you think that the league needs to fix this. And what happened in this series had nothing to do with that fan knocking out a Lightning fan. I watched that series, and I'm not blaming anybody. I I thought Tampa was the better team. They had the better goalie. They had the better top two lines. The Rangers were younger. To make the excuse on the Rangers got tired, it's a ridiculous statement. That's another thing Ranger fans are saying. Listening to fans all over social media not only attack me, but attack Islander fans for no damn reason. The Islanders have been eliminated for two months. Why are we talking about the Islanders? The fact is, the Rangers flat out lost. And looking forward, maybe they have a good future. They have some good young players. Miller looks good. Fox looks good. Shesterkin looks good. Lafanier looked good. Keto looked good. Kako looked good. I don't know why he didn't play him in game six. And I'm sorry. I don't want to hear it from Gerard Gallant at the end of the game on not explaining why he didn't do that. But that doesn't look good for Capococco, who's an unrestricted free agent in the offseason. As far as the Stanley Cup Finals, Avalanche versus Lightning, I think this is going to be a fun series. Right now, the Avalanche is up one to nothing. Tampa is flying high, knocking off a Ranger team that was as hot as any team in the playoffs. 
Braden Point is back. Did he look good in game number one? No, but he's got to get his feet under him. I think Braden Point is going to play a big factor in this series, especially if this series goes seven games. I don't think it will, but if it does, Braden Point is a great playoff player. He's a youngster who has proven himself in the last two years to be a big-time player. And Vasilovsky is going to have to stand on his head against this Avalanche team because McKinnon and company are as good as any offensive team, not only in the Western Conference, but all of the league, Speedy. Yeah, and they also have more offensive depth than they had in previous years, too. That was something that held them back while they were getting knocked out in the second round a lot. They were a lot like a better version of the Bruins where they had the great top six, but really were struggling to find depth. Look at who the goal scorers were in game one. Andre Burakovsky, Arturi Lekanen, Valerie Nishuskin. These are all third-line players. And even their defense, a lot of them got better as well as the season's gone along. They traded for Devontae. got Bowen Byram, big role as a young defenseman, fourth overall pick. This is a deeper defense as a whole. Tampa had a hard Hard time getting it going. And Tampa, like you were saying about Ranger fans blaming them getting tired, they're the ones that could actually get tired being a veteran team down the road. So they want to get this series going quickly. I think a long series benefits the Avalanche just because of that. They're a younger team. They're a little bit deeper this year. And if Braden Point doesn't get going, that could be very hard for them to be able to win a faster series. And because of a longer series, a six or seven, a tougher game series like that, I think benefits the Avalanche. I'm going to take the Avalanche to win it. And Darren Helm, too. Uh-huh. Remember that yep. trade, this trade deadline was a big move for them, adding an offensive player like that. Also adds another different side of the game of hockey, not only with speed, but the way he plays penalty killing offensively in the power of the faceoffs too. That gives them a completely different understanding of where this series could go. I like the Avalanche in this series. If they win at least one game in Tampa, this series could be over. Tampa has to control home ice advantage, especially what they did to the Rangers. They controlled home ice advantage. Whoever controls that in this series is going to win this series. I think the better goaltender, obviously, is on Tampa. Victor Hedman is a fantastic player, but this league is changing. Cal McCarr, he is the future of this league. He is an elite player. So is Devon Thames, who has played fantastic ever since the Islanders traded him. And the Islanders got a second-round draft pick for him. I'm sure the Islanders are questioning why they traded him, but they couldn't sign him. They traded into Colorado. Colorado needed that defensive player, and they got him. And he has been sensational throughout the playoffs. So this team is loaded, and they're going to be good for many, many years to come. And Nathan McKinnon, special, special player. When we come back, we got some NBA conversation as the Golden State Warriors win their fourth championship. Steph Curry wins his first career playoff MVP. And I'm going to tell you why Steph Curry is one of the more overrated players in NBA history. When we come back here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Weekend Crouch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks. My co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, WWSRN, or Android Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Well, as we watch the NHL Stanley Cup start, we watch the ending of the NBA Finals. And boy, oh boy, two teams that I did not want to see in the NBA Finals. The Boston Celtics, who I can't stand, and the Golden State Shimmy Warriors. I know everybody wants to put Steph Curry on the top 10 NBA players of all time. It's ridiculous. Now, do I think Steph Curry is one of the greatest shooters we have ever seen? I think he's the greatest shooter in NBA history, especially in the regular season. In the playoffs, I would say Reggie Miller. And he did win four championships. And he finally won his playoff MVP, which I don't think he deserved. 
I believe Andrew Wiggins was the best player in that series. He absolutely dominated defensively. He took Tatum out of the series. He scored, he rebounded, he blocked, he did everything. Andrew Wiggins was as good as any defensive player we've seen in the playoff finals in a very long time, since LeBron James, since Andre Iguodala won an MVP when the Golden State Warriors won years and years ago. Golden State definitely deserved to win this series. They were the better team. No thanks to Draymond Green. No thanks to Klay Thompson. It was the intangibles. It was players like Andrew Wiggins or Game 4, Steph Curry. Or Jordan Poole hitting quarter shots half court. Or what he did throughout the playoffs, Jordan Poole. And throughout the season when Steph Curry was hurt and Klay Thompson wasn't in that lineup. It was players on the bench, the Andre Iguodala's of the world, that came back to this team to be a leader. The intangibles of this team. And for Stephen A. Smith to come out and say Steve Kerr is one of the greatest coaches in NBA history, it's a joke. Me and anybody listening to this show right now could have coached that team in the primes of their career with Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Draymond Green, and all the other players that they had. The Golden State Warriors have been very, very lucky. The year that they were horrible, they had a top three pick and ended Wiseman, who didn't play in the playoffs, but he is going to be a big piece to the future of this team. Is it fair? No, but that's the way the league wants it. Golden State is the Chicago Bulls of this era. Are they as good as the Chicago Bulls? No. That 90s Chicago Bulls team was probably the greatest team assembled we've ever seen. Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Tony Kukoc, at one point Horace Grant, BJ Armstrong, Steve Kerr, John Paxton. I could go on and on and on. This Golden State Warriors team has talent. And they're going to be good next year as well. Because Steph Curry is still under contract. Klay Thompson is still under contract. Draymond Green is still under contract. Jordan Poole has another year on his contract. Wiseman will be here for a full season. And yes, Andrew Wiggins is under contract. I don't know how all these contracts are under on one team. It doesn't make any sense, but it is. Do I think Steph Curry is one of the overrated players in our history? Yes. He is a great shooter. He doesn't play defense. I listen to all these different analysts after they win a championship say that nobody appreciates Steph Curry. Nobody realizes how good Steph Curry is until he's gone. Is Steph Curry better than Shaquille O'Neal? Is Steph Curry better than Oscar Robinson, Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Tim Duncan, Hakeem Olajuwon, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird? For anybody to put him in the same thought of those players is blind. He's not even in the top five point guards of all time. He's not better than Isaiah Thomas. He's not better than Jason Kidd. He's not even better than Chris Paul. And yes, you're going to say Chris Paul never won a championship. It's not Chris Paul's fault that he never played on an elite team like the Golden State Warriors. To say that Steph Curry isn't a Hall of Famer, then you would say I was a hater. He is a Hall of Famer. He's the leader of that team. He's one of the reasons why they won that championship. But he isn't the reason why they won that championship. Two takeaways I look at with this Golden State Warriors team. One of which is there's youngsters that are taking over now. Mm-hmm. Clay Thompson and Draymond Green throughout this postseason as a whole weren't as big of factors as they normally are. And the rebounding end of it for Draymond Green and the defensive end of it did not look strong. Now he was still good at passing. He hit his occasional threes. I'm not saying he's like washed up as a player, but he's definitely not what he was. And he, as an undersized power forward, it's very hard. And Clay Thompson definitely looked off defensively throughout the entire postseason. He had some good game shooting. Last three games of this series, he had some good game shooting against Dallas. Fine. But he definitely was not the same type of player. It's the youngsters now that are going to take over this Golden State team. Now, you brought up what Stephen A. Smith was saying about Steve Kerr, and you're absolutely 
right in terms of him not being the legacy type coach of being one of the greatest coaches of all time just because he won three championships. He won four championships. Yeah, but I will say his coaching job this year I think earned a little more credibility with that because of all the injuries they had, because of all the young players that they had. I give him more credit for that in comparison to the quote-unquote super teams with Kevin Durant and those splash brothers in their prime. But this one I give him a little more credit for out coaching Memphis's coaching Taylor Jenkins, out coaching Dallas's coach with well, Jason. He didn't out coach Memphis's coach. I'm not saying he told Jordan Poole to pull John Morant's knee, but as soon as that happened, that series was over. But they also won a game before that too, and out outplayed the Grizzlies' depth, which was great during that season. And the same thing we say with the Celtics' depth. How good was the Celtics' depth playing all throughout this postseason? Golden State's depth outplayed it in certain points of this, and I give Steve Kerr some credit for that too. In terms of Steph Curry, not a complete player all around. So whoever's putting him in the top ten overall players of all time, no top ten point guards. Yeah, definitely is there at this point. Top now five? I wouldn't put him there either. He's probably like a seven, seven or eight. I think Chris Paul's the most complete all time. Probably the best dominance probably is Magic Johnson. But there's other arguments for Jason Kidd as well. I do want to say his value though still contributes in the whole aspect of this system where that kind of thing is not going to be taken away in comparison to Clay Thompson, in comparison to Draymond Green of all the old guys. Steph Curry's still going to be the guy that runs this team. Steph Curry's still going to be the guy that runs the offense with the motion and with the shooting and what the Warriors like to do in terms of shooting threes. And I think this is the first postseason where as a completed postseason, whether or not he should have won finals MVP, he played the best all around. When Kevin Durant outplayed him in previous postseasons, Clay Thompson outplayed him in previous postseasons, he was the best consistent all around. I think Andrew Wiggins was the most consistent in the NBA Finals. You want to give him the MVP because this might be the last time they're there. It's not easy getting there, and especially the Clippers are going to be better next year because Kawhi Leonard will be back, Paul George. The Nuggets could go after free agents in the offseason. I think the Boston Celtics are only going to be better because Tatum's there. Jalen Brown is very young. Marcus Smart signed that extension uh, last offseason. So this is a team that's going to be built for the playoffs next year again. So I don't think we've seen the last of the Boston Celtics, but this could be the last of the Golden State Warriors, especially the Western Conference. Nobody thought the Phoenix Suns were going to be as bad as they were against the Dallas Mavericks. The Mavericks could be better next year, too, if they make a couple of moves as well. There are so many different players that could be on the move in the offseason. They could be worse. DeAndre Ayton could be gone. He could go somewhere else. The Lakers. Maybe he goes to Utah in a trade for Rudy Gobert. I heard the Spurs are going to pursue him hard, too. The Spurs could be the last year of Popovich, so maybe they make a run. man to groom again, yeah. There's so many things that could happen. I don't know if Golden State... Now, talent-wise, they're going to still have the talent there. And with Wiseman in that lineup, they're going to have even more depth, which is scary to say, but you want to say the lottery is fixed? I really believe the NBA lottery is fixed. When they had one bad season, they somehow get in a top five in a COVID year, and they get arguably the best player in that draft in Wiseman, who hasn't been healthy for the last two years, but when he gets that figured out, he's a dangerous player. He's one of the more elite young power forwards that I think is going to be in this league. So, it's crazy to say that they're going to be better next year. And that's who's going to take over and probably be better at certain things because of his height. Draymond Green. Jordan Poole is going to take over Clay Thompson in terms of a full-time role. And you're going to see Andrew Wiggins have a bigger role throughout the trajectory of what the Golden State Warriors are going to be if they're going to get back again next year and in the future. And the depth, they've drafted a lot of wing depth already in the last couple drafts as well. Moses Moody, Jonathan Kuminga, Damian Lee's been a solid backup point guard at times that could take over a Clay Thompson type role. So those guys are going to be faded out. The original Splash Brothers, the original core of those finals are going to be faded out, probably besides Steph Curry. As far as this story with the 76ers giving James Harden $80 million together 
for two years. I don't think it's much of a story. Now, a lot of people think that James Harden should have taken the five-year extension that he because he was going to get offered, but he wanted to get more money in a lesser time, or he believes that he is going to get another extension. Now, who knows what happens to James Harden? I still think he has a good four more years left in this league. I don't know what team's going to give him another extension after this two years, especially when he starts to play the way he has been playing in the playoffs. He has not played well in the playoffs. He has been a good regular season player. He's been one of the prolific offensive players in the regular season. This guy can't stay healthy. And he's pushed his way out of not one, but two different teams. In the last four years, what is it going to take for Doc Rivers to say, you're no good and I want to get rid of you? And then he's going to force his way out of the 76ers. Where is he going to go then? The Lakers? The Knicks? I don't want him. No. He has forced himself out of the Rockets. He forced himself out of Brooklyn. What's it going to take for him and Embiid to not get along? Or him and Harris not to get along? For him to be traded? Maybe he gets traded back to Brooklyn with Ben Simmons. <laughs> That'd be funny. And Kevin Durant. As Kyrie Irving goes elsewhere yep. in a three-way trade, we've been hearing Russell Westbrook and his name being brought into trade talks, yep. which I think is ridiculous. Who cares about James Harden? Because he hasn't done anything in the playoffs. He hasn't done anything to win. And he could be a great regular season player. Carmelo Anthony, for years, was a great regular season player. In the playoffs, not so much. I would say Carmelo Anthony had some better postseasons than even James Harden has had in certain years, too. In terms of the all-time, legacy-wise, maybe James Harden with all the scoring titles he had and all that stuff. No, I think Carmelo Anthony's a better player. It's fair. It's fair. Nevertheless, I think this is going to be a hard thing for any team to want to take on, to. Whether it's the Sixers and whether it's another team later on, if he does end up opting out of the two-year deal just because of that. And also the regression he had in the regular season last year. He still was great with assists, 10.5, but was very inefficient. Shot only 47% from field and overall 40% for the whole year 21 points a game got off to a really slow start when Kyrie was out and Kevin Durant was playing great but still trying to find his form again off the injury and he had his worst stretch that year and then in the playoffs with the Sixers he became a third option you're going to take a third option for that much money? That's going to be very, very hard for the Sixers or any team to trust. As far as the Kyrie Westbrook three-way trade, it was reported that NBA insiders are thinking that it might be Kyrie to the Lakers. Russell Westbrook going to the Thunder back home, fan favorite over there, and the Thunder either eat the salary cap or buy him out, whatever. And the Nets will be getting two first-round picks from the Thunder. And that's I think, not going to make Kevin Durant very happy. No, it's sure. not. And they're going to have to hope that either they bank on a maybe multiple and a bad free agent class, or maybe they use that picks for something else because, yeah, they're going to either have to trade Kevin Durant or hope Kevin Durant works well with young players. Well, they have Ben Simmons still there. I don't know. And hope Ben Simmons plays, yeah. (laughs) Stay healthy. His emotional (laughs) problems and his body problems, I don't know how much time Ben Simmons has left in this league. And that's crazy to say because he's still fairly a young player. But he got a big, huge contract from the 76ers and it just didn't live up to it. As far as the NBA draft, that's going to be fun and we'll see where the Knicks fall when it comes to the draft. There are some rumors that they could be trading up for Jaden Ivey. I would love to see the Knicks do something like that. That would be a big splash, but what are they going to have to trade to do it? That's the question. Are you going to trade away Obi Toppin or a Quigley to move up for Ivey? And is Ivey that player that's going to change your organization for the better? That's the question. Yeah, there are rumors that the Kings are trying to move the number four pick as of right now, and the Pistons number five would be the other option if they wanted to trade into the top five in order to get Ivey, because odds are that is where he's going to go. He's thought of probably as the third or fourth best prospect by a lot of these analysts, and I can't see him falling 
falling past six. The Knicks would have to definitely give up their first round pick, maybe another one, and then possibly one of those young players. I don't know about it, somebody like Obi Toppin, but maybe Quigley, maybe some of the kids they drafted the last two years too could definitely be involved in that kind of deal if they want him. The other thing is if the Knicks stay at 11, the two players they liked is Benedict Mathurin, the shooting guard out of Arizona. They might have to trade up a little if they want him. Also, Johnny Davis from Wisconsin, a good scorer, three-point shooter as well. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get into Moneyline Mania here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks. My co-host, Speedy PD. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. We have our guest, the handicappers of the nation, the best of the best, Chaz and his crew. We call this segment Moneyline Mania. <laughs> this is Moneyline Mania. With Chaz and the crew. Chazzy Moto, what's going on, buddy? I was nervous because I was running late. Last week, I ended the show with a loser. So now I'm thinking to myself, I gave him a loser. Uh, I'm running late. This is really looking like I could get one of those emails where your services are no longer required. So I'm very glad that I made it to our Moneyline Mania section. But it's a weird time of year for a lot of people, guys. But for Wes and I, it's like the beginning. It's not Hanukkah. It's not Christmas. But it's better than the 4th of July, I think. You know, even though, Wes, don't they have a big holiday games this summer in Canada? It depends on what day of the week it falls. But the reliable schedule for Canadian football is Thursday night, Friday night, and then usually two on Saturday. Every Every now and then you'll get one on Sunday and Canadian Thanksgiving, big holiday that usually falls on a Monday. So anyway, but I got to tell you another quick story that I'm going to let Wes talk because this was pretty funny. I worked my butt off to get all my bets in Friday for the hockey game. That's tonight. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, baby. I'm overworked at this point in my career, but the bottom line, it was on my list of things to do. I didn't put what day. I just said handicap the hockey game. I knew there was going to be a hockey game. But it was pretty cool to have the whole day ahead, right? Already handicapped. So, Wes, what do you got? I'm looking at the Tampa Bay Lightning and the, and the Colorado Avalanche, and I'm not going to try and pick a winner because I don't think that there's value laying one and a half points to find yourself at plus money. Colorado is coming off just a dominant performance. And, and I think that they're the better team. I think that they're young. I think that they're hot. I, I think that Nathan McKinnon is to this league realistically what Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen can be. He's on the verge of a cup. So I, I don't want to compare the teams. But this is what I dug into. You go all the way back to April. And you look at Tampa coming off of a loss. You got to take out their multiple losses in a row. They lost two in a row to the Rangers. And then they had an ugly stretch of multiple losses early in April. But if you take those multiples off, coming off of a loss, they score three goals or more. They scored eight goals in one case. They scored seven goals in one case. So coming off of a loss, since that ugly streak in April... There ain't no, if we're looking at going over the team total for this particular game, it's two and a half team total for Tampa. They are going to score more than two and a half goals. Whether or not they win is irrelevant to me. Tampa can score goals at will. They've proven that throughout the playoffs. They just took down the hottest goalie in the tournament. And at the same time, I think everybody that knows hockey is on the same page that we're up for mediocre for that Colorado goalie. So my play is Tampa over two and a half goals total for the game. And I think this one could be cashing for us mid-second period. I actually did cash on that last game because, yeah, I'm looking at the data, and when you separate out just their away games, there's nothing but twos or greater. 
and it was two and a half. What, it was three to one, right? You're not thinking it looks like they're going to score. And then bada boom, bada bing, as they say when you're Italian, uh, it was three to three. And they're now coming off a loss, an overtime loss, where they came back and scored two real quick. So them coming off a loss as well coached as they are, this is not going to be a sweep of a series. So there's going to come a game. I have some inside information that was relayed to me by one of my handicapper guys. It was on the, the previous game. It was to bet the under six. And it didn't look like it was even close to being close. And it ended up right about there. So he wasn't far from it. So I went and I took that information and I moved it over to tonight. I, I'm, I'm sticking with the under tonight. I think, like you said, if Tampa Bay is going to keep this game close, the way they're going to do it is three to two, something where, like that's what I'm looking at. Now, Wes, I have a question for you. You mentioned the, the Tampa bounce-back potential. We've seen, outside of maybe the first five games against the Leafs this postseason, Tampa's been doing it more in bunches. They won the last two against Toronto, then they swept the Panthers, then lost two against the Rangers, then four in a row after that. They do, and that Rangers series, it almost looked like the Rangers had all kinds of momentum going on, and, and it just looked like Tampa needed to find their legs in that series, because the Rangers came out and took it to them in those first two. But then something happened, and I think that that something happened was Steven Stamkos, that is just a star player, ultimate leader in hockey, showing up big and dragging his team along with it. But now they got point back. That's a big player returning. I agree with you that something happened late in the series, and they do win in bunches. And it can be demoralizing. You got the best goalie in the world on that team. Coming off of a performance where he just allowed four goals, that doesn't happen often either. Yeah, and that was the thing in game one with the Rangers, too. He allowed six goals, and a lot of them were bad goals, too. Uncharacteristic for him. I remember you texted me while I was on vacation, West. You texted the group. You were saying, oh, these Rangers, they came out just as you thought they would, up to nothing, and then just couldn't find anything offensively. The Rangers were exciting to watch. They were that upstart team, and if they would have taken down Tampa, it wouldn't have bothered me. I'm not a Tampa fan. It's good for the sport to see a three-peat, but it's also good for the sport to see a large market like New York to get a team like the Rangers in there, get MSG popping again. God knows the Knicks aren't going to do it for you in that city. As a fan of both teams, yeah, I would say more likely for the Well, growing up back there, I've got a big-time thread on social media from East Coast guys, and they were rocking. New York Rangers fans were rocking, and it was fun. And again, because we were talking to 103.9 West the whole summer, we saw it three or four weeks before the season was even over. We were watching the Rangers play better, and the Islanders sliding backwards. And the Rangers really very well-balanced team. They have great players. They have some all-stars. I don't think that they have a sure-shot Hall of Famer on that roster like some of these other teams in the playoffs. And they were just getting it from depth and balance. They were just fun to watch. All right, so before we go any further, we have to give the guy that called the future NBA championship plus 900 winner. We got to give him a shout-out. Clapping. <laughs> I don't do a lot of futures. I had one recently. What was that hat did in the NBA? Made money on a team that lost. Villanova. When team wins. You don't have to worry about making money on it. You made money on it. So congratulations, Wes. No doubt Thank you it. very much. Listeners can't see it, but I'm doing a step shim. <laughs> And, and, and I the know other I know. aspect of it is Canadian football. So you're on the radio a lot. You do your show a lot, Speedy. How much CFL are you talking? The only CFL we've really been talking is just some of the guests we've had on that used to be CFL players or they were ex-NFL players. Uh, we had one a couple weeks ago, Stefan Logan, that was a wide receiver, a kick returner, played for the Steelers and the Lions in the NFL, played for three different CFL teams as well. And he was mentioning the first time we had him on the show, when we had him on two years ago, he was mentioning a lot of things you've been mentioning, Wes, a lot of the rule changes that have happened being different than the NFL. Now he's 
definitely been well pulsed on both games now. Very knowledgeable guy, fun guy to have on the show. Some of the rules, it's a different game. It is football. I believe that the last three minutes of a CFL game, if the game is within seven points, the last three minutes of a CFL game, the only thing that can compare to it is playoff NHL overtime. They don't have a two-minute warning. They have a three-minute warning. Correct. So that's a timeout. Everybody stops. And when you're getting close to that end zone, that end zone is so big. And the field goals are so close. And you don't see this in too many football games. If Oklahoma State is playing Texas A&M, you can get three scores in the last three minutes. But in a <laughs> CFL game, it's totally possible. There's no value to taking the knee because it's two and out. So you take two knees, and you're going to cost yourself 10 yards by doing it and ruin your field position for the punt. It almost worked in the Louisiana Bowl with the water boy. Almost. <laughs> Don't mess with Bobby Boucher. Last week, you weren't here. Hector went 2-1. and one. But you know what? I tell these guys, that's the other aspect about sports betting, whether it's Paolo or Hector. It's not money line or points. It's win, lose, or draw. There's three odds. There's three things you could bet. Every soccer game, so almost every play Hector gives us is plus money. It's not because it's an underdog. It's the favorite at plus money. Sometimes the favorite is the draw if it's a low-scoring game that they're assuming. But it's funny because he goes two and one most weeks, Wes, and we're plus three units. (laughs) How does that happen, you know? That's great, though. Wes, you've, you've done the same thing with CFL, but remember, it was three years ago. We talked about it, and then we lost it. Then we got it back, but we got the stepchild version of CFL. This year, we've got what you talked about. I'm just loving it. It really, and especially I'm working a lot, so it is so cool that the games are on ESPN or ESPN Plus because you can watch them, but it is. If you've never watched CFL, you've got to watch it as it's football. Don't worry about what the hell the guys are doing. Don't worry about any of that stuff. You'll figure that stuff out. You're going to be going to the bridge, right, Wes? And they come back and your team has a point. And you have no idea why your team has a point. So then you go to the bathroom and you come back and you're looking at a football game where the score is one to one. You just got to let that stuff go. You got to just relax and you look at the hits, you look at the passes, you look at the catches. There's some good football players, Wes, on those fields. There is. And the flow of the game, it's exciting. Like you said, it's easy to find the games. You know, it is funny. When you look at the scoreboard, like I think we were exchanging text messages last night and the score is six to one. It's like, how does that happen? But there is a strategy behind those singles and the length of the field. If they're at the 50 yard line in the NFL, kicking a field goal, then what, a 67 yarder, 68 yarder? If you're at the 50 yard line in the CFL, that's a 50 yard field goal and they're making it. But here's the thing. This is a sports betting story. This is classic sports betting. I have my second half data. Now, they call me second half chats for a reason. I got like 14 years of second half data. But it's my only loser. And it was that team. Remember last year they were perfect? And I lost on a missed extra point. I could not believe it. That's football. You don't lose on a missed extra point in any other sport. If you don't think Canadian football is football, then you've never lost on a missed extra point. So that was basically the TFL version of the 2003 Saints that ruined a perfectly good lateral miracle by a missed extra point that would have tied the game. Oh, yeah, exactly. And it really is. It's so disheartening when you're watching because you can tell most missed extra points aren't even close. Or they're loud because you hear the noise. (laughs) So let's talk about tonight's game. Tonight's game, it's Saskatchewan and Edmonton. I'm going to say some things that aren't very nice. I'm doing it in the spirit of sports investing. Edmonton is not very good. 
Edmonton is my pick to be dead last in the entire league this year. They they tried to make some moves mid-season last year. And Nick Arbuckle, they tried to make a move at quarterback, but I think they made the wrong move. But in any case, they traded away Ellingson. He, he now plays at Winnipeg, and he's number one, number two receiver quality. They really cost themselves the ability to score points. Edmonton is coming off of a performance to BC where they lost 59 to 15. 59 points were hung on them. And the quarterback that did it is Nathan Rourke. Comes from the University of Ohio. Nathan Rourke has got a bright future in the CFL. He's mobile. He can throw the ball. God, it was fun to watch him Tuesday night in action. Um, Back action, baby. Exactly. He's in a good place. He's taken over from Michael Riley. BC is going to do well. However, Hanging 59, Nathan Rourke and BC is not 59 points on anybody good enough. So now let's move to this week and let's look at Edmonton. All the good things about BC, I don't think that their defense is hold somebody to 15 points good. Now we're going to get Saskatchewan coming to town. You're going to get Cody Fajardo, who's running the ball, throwing the ball, and he's coming off of kind of a mediocre performance, one touchdown. If you're talking about the best quarterback in the CFL, Cody Fajardo is either 1 or 1A, and I don't think that there's any further discussion about it. He's going to be licking his chops coming into this game. Sask is coming off of a tremendous defensive performance against Hamilton. They only allowed the Ticats 13 points, and at the same time, they hung 30. And Hamilton's odd, because early in the season, usually, it takes some time for their defense to build up. But when you hang 30 on Hamilton, they're one of the top defenses from a year ago. Hanging 30 on Hamilton, I would only think the translation to Edmonton is you're going to hang at least that and then some. So I am laying the seven and a half points. That is not a number I like to lay. Anything over six and a half, you know, that, that has to be a real lopsided matchup for me in any sport. But I think Saskatchewan is going to go into Edmonton and they're going to cover the seven and a half for sure. I think it's going to be ugly. We are probably going to find a tremendous amount of caches just simply betting against Edmonton and laying the points this season. There's nine teams is all there is. There's two of them last year that stunk so bad that betting against them was easy. There were two that were good. We bet them, and then we kind of left the guys in the middle alone, and it was just a wonderful run, but it was only a handful. Look, 12 games? What did they play last year? Last year was a reduced season. Winnipeg was 11-3, and three, so it was 14 games. Yeah, and then only a couple rounds of the play. All right, so so it's so funny. Again, I was happy that you had me on. I know I gave you a loser last week. I do apologize for that. But I was running late, so I didn't have time to do all the numbers. You know, I like throwing numbers at you. And their last 17, they're, you know, 14 and 3, they've scored whatever. But listen to these notes. This is what I've got on Edmonton. In the first half, I simply wrote, don't score. For the game, allow a lot. (laughs) That's not a fancy sports betting term. But if you know a team that allows a lot, trust me, it's a valuable sports betting term. In the first half, I've got Saskatchewan. And remember two years ago when we first started this, Wes, I couldn't say it? I called them the Rough Riders because I couldn't say Saskatchewan. They don't allow points in the first half. They don't score a lot, though. So the bottom line is they're the better team. The line went from eight to seven and a half. I got it at eight. You said seven and a half. So it's moved a little bit. They should win this game. I don't know about the total. Any opinions on the total, Wes? The odds are not the greatest, but the total has Sask at 27 and a half. I like the over there because I think Sask is going to hang a 30 burger, but the odds on it are minus 145. So not the best odds. I think that we're safe, especially the way that that defense played last week. I mean, they just played nasty and took Yeah, the well, ball I'll tell you right now, when you look at this easy sports data, 
There's a lot of numbers what the other team scored column for the Edmonton team that are over that number you just mentioned. Yeah. They're higher than that number. They've given up that number a lot. If we're looking at team totals, you know, Edmonton is 20 and a half. They scored 15 on BC. One would think they're going to really struggle to do that against a SAS team that completely shut down Hamilton. Now, now that Hamilton game, they lost their quarterback. They lost their starting quarterback. And the guy that they went to, for all intents and purposes, is the number three just because they're in a transition. Jeremiah Mazzoli was traded and he was the starter last year. So number two became one, number three became came to I mean it's very different than the NFL where they just draft a new guy and they got some young fun thing that they're going to throw in there. They just kind of shift everybody up. So holding Hamilton to the 13, it's not as shiny as it looks, but Edmonton to under 20 and a half. I like that too. That's what we bring to the table. There's handicappers out there, but we really talk about it every single day. It's part of our soul, for lack of a better word, how to bet these games. The other night, I went down and I said to the guys, I think it's going to be 104-103 the final. That was the basketball game that Wes won all that money on. You remember what the final was, Petey? 103-90, yep. So I said 104 to 103. So what I did, Wes, is I bet Golden State on the money line, got the plus, took the points, and bet them over. Team total. Took Boston, bet against Boston, of course, took their points they were given, and bet their team total under. Now, it was 12 to 2 when I first got out of my office and went downstairs and talked to my kid. I was working, so I wasn't focusing on it. And that was not a really good start for that wagering philosophy, so I didn't tell them. So when I came back right before halftime, and I knew that I was a lock to win every single bet, but then they didn't go over their team total for the game because they started slowing it down. And I looked to CJ, my son's buddy was here. I said, ah, you know what? Anytime I go in 11-1, and I feel like a failure, and I walked upstairs. <laughs> you just said it, though. When you're 11-0 and or 11-1, and I think you sent a text about a week ago where you were just red hot in baseball and everything else. And I think 13 and 0 was the number and you had sent the message over about the Padres. And I said to myself instantly, I ain't touching. You've already won 13. How many more? Right. No, you, you, again, every time, you know, and we talk about it with sports betting philosophy and this sports betting lesson stuff, it really is. It's so much more important than who you bet. I had one game that I focused on. And I went 11-1. and one. I doubled plus my bankroll because it was all straight action. You're not parlaying. Live action, you can catch 7-1s in live action. But betting before the game, that's what you're getting. But it's just like roulette. I've walked up to so many roulette tables where it's been red 11 times in a row. And the son of a guns are all putting their money on black because it can't be red again. Of course I can be wrong. <laughs> the next game, just like a cornerback, right? We talk about it. You get burnt on a long touchdown pass. Speedy. You're a sports better. You go to the next game. You don't worry about it. Next play. Next. That's all you can do. Next. We talk about futures. You would ask me, how do you approach futures? And, you know, what I talk about on my Discord page with futures, my Discord page is, is stock investors. It's, it's investors, people that are looking at options, trading, and investing in, in stocks. And so we talk about ROI and timeframes and exit strategies. When we're talking about futures, to place a bet on who's going to win the Stanley Cup in 2023, yeah, that's a long time to ROI your money, even if it is nine to one. You think about what you can do with that cash in hand over and over. The strategy that we take when it comes to futures is this. We pay it as a tax. So let's just say you're betting five bucks a game. $5 is your unit. When you say I'm betting one unit, you're betting five bucks. Every time you cash, so you bet five bucks, it returns $4.50, right? Because of the juice and everything else. Well, you take the 50 cents of that and you put it on that future bet. So you're still a winner there, but you paid your 50 cent tax on the Ottawa Red Blacks to win the Grey Cup. And then the next time you win, you bet a unit, you win $4.50, you take 50 cents, 
and you put that on the Golden State Warriors to win the NBA championship. So the way we approach futures is we just simply pay it as a tax. And so by the time you get to that Grey Cup in November or you get to the 2023 Stanley Cup, you don't even realize that you have 27 50 cent bets on something that pays plus 1200 and it just pays out like a nice bonus. And rather than lay down a chunk of change and have to wait over a year or six months to get the return on. So that's how we approach it. And if you're not winning and you're not cashing. There's a whole nother problem. There's a whole nother <laughs> problem there. And there's 800 numbers you can call. Right. And please send us messages. This is not a philosophy that I do a lot because I just don't bet futures. But I have done it with some of the plays that I've had with Wes's philosophy. And the first thing I want to say is it ain't 50 cents when he's doing it. Okay. But I understand the analogy to get the numbers out. The bottom line is. It adds up so quickly that you don't even see the money. I came up for a name for this a while back. Speedy, I call it his virtual change jar for sports betting. Because that's truly what it is. You throw the money, you throw the change in the jar on the counter. And the next thing you know, you got 300 bucks. But it's 300 bucks on 14 to 1. And that is escrow payment money, right? It's escrow payment money. And you don't feel it as you're doing it. And Petey, you're like an encyclopedia when it comes to sports. You go back to the year 2000. How many worst to first championships have we seen in sports? The Rams come to my mind from worst to first. The Baltimore Ravens were another huge, I think that was a 65 to 1 payout to win the Super Bowl when they won Mm. it. I think it was back in 01 or 02. In every sport, there's something like it. And somebody's winning it. Mm -hmm. Why not us? You don't think much about it. Say it's $100. Say you end up winning 10 bats and and you throw $100 on a team like UConn that was 18 to 1. When it does hit, and we've hit them, so we know they hit, 18 to 1 on $100 changes your day money. It's a change your day money. Because if you're making $1,800 a day, five days a week, you got a nice, decent job. So you got basically a free day's pay. You could do an awful lot of damage with 1800 Don't get me wrong. It's one bottle of Cristal at a club. I understand that. I'm just saying, in the normal world, 1800 bucks is a nice. I was always, that's my number, Wes, 1700 bucks. If somebody says to me, so you're going to track and say, yep, my goal is to win 1700 bucks. You know how I do with those superfectors. I do okay. I like $1,700. In fact, I'd like to meet the person that doesn't like $1,700 because that's a mentality I need to understand. All right, before we let you guys go, Wes, one more for your Golden State Warriors. Come on, come on, come on, come on. MVP, MVP. Thank you guys both for joining us. Always be cashing, guys. Always be cashing, guys. Have a good week. Money Line Mania, ladies and gentlemen. They're fantastic. And boy, oh boy, I'm telling you guys right now, these are the guys to listen to. Last week, Chaz was, I think, 13 and 0. Wes, who was 3 and 1. Hector, 3 and 0. Fantastic guys. Listen to their picks this week. They're fantastic. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, Speedy, we have our special guest. We will be talking to co founder and pros with Joe's Charity League leader. Eric Romoff and fantasy football guru here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Errol Marks, my co-host, Speedy PD. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, WWSRN, or Android, World Wide Sports Radio Network. Well, we have our first and only 
only guest of the show this week. We were very excited to get him on. We are now talking to co-founder of Pros and Joe's Charity League, Eric Romoff. What's going on, Eric? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So why don't you tell the fans a little bit about the charity work that you do for Pros and Joe's and the fantasy football stuff that you've been doing over the last couple of years. Pros with Joe's is a charity fantasy football league. There are many of them out there. They're all doing great work and supporting wonderful causes. What's different about ours is that every single team that's participating is a set of co-managers. We have a pro, a fantasy professional or an industry professional, and a Joe, someone who specifically donated to that pro's charity. They're entered into a sweepstakes. Whoever wins that sweepstakes gets to co-manage that team along with the pro they donated for in an expert league. So we're heading to our third year of doing it. We've had right about 50 teams or 50 pairings participate each year so far, raised just under $20,000 over the last two years for a variety of different causes. So really cool way to get to interact with the fantasy community to potentially kind of get to ride shotgun with a fantasy expert that you know and trust and to raise some money for a number of good causes. Eric, what kind of pros that you have come play in your games? Music artists or maybe some basketball players or football players. Give us some of the names that have actually played in your charity event. Our structure is a bit more focused on the the fantasy space. Mm -hmm. So the pros that we're referring to are people like Dave Richard Mm -hmm. or Matt Harmon, Adam Rank or Marcus Grant from NFL Mm -hmm. Network. So the people that have kind of led the way and, and the more recognizable names in the fantasy content creation space. Those are a few examples. We, we've got a pretty diverse crowd of fantasy experts that participate as our Joes. So people that have started their own thing and they're a couple years in to people that are on NFL Network and ESPN every single Sunday. So have you looked into athletes as well? Because I know a lot of them play fantasy football. I know there's that whole argument with baseball players now, Jock Peterson and Mike Trout and all them. Is that kind of the next step for you? You want to get more in terms of expanding beyond the fantasy community? I think that would be really cool. I may or may not be in Jock Peterson's DMs right now. <laughs> He's on the moment of that very public fight. We are talking to co-founder of Pros and Joe's Charity League, Eric Romoff. Hey, Eric, what, what kind of charities do you normally do? Do you have charities coming to you, getting in on the fantasy action? Because I've seen nothing's made more money than some of these fantasy football leagues or some of these fantasy sports leagues. And how many charities are you involved with? And do they come to you or do you have to go out and ask them? It's actually neither. So one of the wrinkles of our format is that the industry pro, the, the fantasy expert that is participating, gets to choose what charity they're supporting. So as opposed to it all going to a singular cause or a couple of causes, it actually goes to support an organization that is near and dear to their heart. So we've supported and raised money for all of the big ones, American Cancer Foundation, Red Cross, all the names that you typically think of, all the way down to like super localized stuff, right? Helping homeless populations in a particular city, helping save and rehabilitate injured wildlife in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, right? Mm -hmm. It's been one of the cool parts of this experience for me is really just getting to see all the different types of organizations out there. And while there are so many different things that they're all working to support, the thing that is universal about all of them that's truly incredible is they do an amazing job of stretching a dollar, right? They can get $2 in their hands and make something really good come out of it. And that's been the case across the board. So it's been really interesting to see it all come together. 
I think that's really interesting because you have so many different things that could happen within a community. And then if you can make it that specific, there's so many people out there that need help, so many people hurting, so many causes that are coming out of COVID. This, that's a great way to do it. So congratulations. As everybody knows, we are yep. talking to co-founder of Pros and Joe's Charity League, Eric Romoff. We've seen a change in the NFL, especially in the AFC this offseason. A lot of the great quarterbacks from the NFC are starting to move to the AFC. Some of the better defensive players, one beast of a man from Chicago is now playing for the Chargers now. What has been the most interesting and more impressive thing that you've seen so far this offseason in the NFL? The biggest thing for me has just been the evolution of the wide receiver market. We think about to when free agency first opened up and Christian Kirk signed that gigantic contract with Jacksonville and it was kind of a punchline. And come to find out what really happened is he entirely reset the wide receiver market, right? Now wide receivers are expecting to be paid as one of, if not the highest contract on their respective teams. And it's kind of created some chaos around the NFL, right? You see names being traded that previously would be untouchable. You see guys that were not that long ago, fairly happy with their situation. Now all of a sudden holding out of OTAs or wanting to restructure their agreement, literally in a 24 hour window, our understanding of the value of this position in the NFL completely flipped on its head. For a while, there were so many analysts saying, oh, the wide receiver doesn't matter. You don't need it to win Super Bowls. Meanwhile, that was only the Patriots. So two big names that got traded, Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill, their fantasy value now being on new teams. Where do you stand on those two? It's hard to say. Both of these guys were, with their previous team, the elite among wide receivers. So to expect that to carry forward with so many variables, not necessarily the most realistic outcome. What is reasonable to expect this year and years to come? I think they're still going to be very much so premier at their position. We're not going to see nearly as many deep shots to Tyreek Hill coming from Tua Tagovailoa as we saw coming from the arm of Patrick Mahomes. But you look at the back half of this Kansas City season last year, and as a response to the too high shell that they were facing defensively, they pretty much moved to a very quick pass kind of underneath over the middle offense. And Tyreek Hill was able to be just fine, still be a very productive wide receiver one from a fantasy perspective. So I think we see him get to pretty similar production, but kind of through a different means in Miami. In terms of Devontae Adams moving over to the now Las Vegas Raiders. The biggest question there is Josh McDaniels. You look at his history as an offensive coordinator. Generally speaking, what they try to do is get the ball out very quickly to the primary target. So as long as that history holds true, I think that leads to a very heavy workload for Devontae Adams. Obviously, Derek Carr is not Aaron Rodgers, but he's certainly a capable NFL quarterback. So if Devontae Adams is getting a huge workload of targets coming from Derek Carr, I think we can also see him finish inside that top 12 at the position pretty readily. Tyreek Hill might be not getting the arm strength of Patrick Mahomes, but he's getting the quote-unquote accuracy that he thinks Tua apparently has more of. Well, Mahomes was really pissed off for everything that Hill has said about the accuracy of Tua. I don't know how anybody thinks that Tua has a better accurate arm than Patrick Mahomes, except maybe Tyreek Hill. Maybe Tyreek was drinking when he said it, or on his podcast, or maybe he just thinks that saying this is going to bring more press to him. I don't think Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the league. I never thought he was. You still have Aaron Rodgers there who's won back-to-back MVPs, and you still have Tom Brady there, and as long as those two guys are there, Patrick Mahomes isn't the best quarterback in the league. I don't know if he will be by the time that happens, because you got guys like a guy that played in the Super Bowl last year that looked pretty damn good, and you have a guy right now like Justin Herbert who has an 
unbelievable team around him, defensively, offensively. I think the Chargers are going to make a run for the Super Bowl this year. They look really, really good on paper. There's a lot to like about this Chargers team as it was last year, and then they go out and add a guy like Khalil Mack, and they pretty much nailed their draft. J.C. Jackson, too. Don't forget about him. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly a fun, maybe not-so-dark horse to throw a future onto. Eric, you look at, here in New York, a lot has been made of the Jets being a popular pick in Vegas. I think one guy put $5,000 on it, 200 to 1 for them to make the Super Bowl. What team do you see as being a sleeper? that could maybe make a run like the Bengals did last year. I think the first thing that's important to do is to put into context what the Bengals did last year. The absolute bottom of their division, last or near the bottom in a number of different statistical categories the year prior, to then turn that around into a Super Bowl run a year later is almost unprecedented at the NFL level. So I don't think we're going to see a team like the Jets make their way Uh to the Super Bowl, unfortunately, for that guy that put down five large on that. But There are some teams that I I think are kind of in that middle of the pack that can potentially offer some value from a betting perspective. Denver is a team that I really like. I think their price is interesting, and it very much so reflects the difficulty of their division. But if they happen to make it out of that division, if they happen to sneak in as a wild card, you'll be very happy looking at 20-ish to 1, depending on your book of choice. The New England Patriots. We've been hearing a lot of stories out in their camp that Mac Jones looks 100% healthier than he did last year. He lost a lot of weight. He's dieting. His arm is a little bit stronger. His accuracy has been fantastic. We all know what the Patriots like to do. They like to run the ball. They're four strong running backs. In the offseason, very, very quiet. Everybody was questioning Bill Belichick's draft. An offensive lineman that a lot of people thought was a late second round, early third round pick. What were your thoughts so far this offseason? They had a very good season last year. Some of the guys really overachieved. What are your thoughts to the Patriots this year? Do you think Mac Jones could take that next step as a quarterback in the AFC? I think it's reasonable to expect progression from him. I feel like what we saw out of Mac Jones last year was head and shoulders above what we could have expected from him him coming as a rookie. I don't want to say it's near his ceiling, but it was certainly the highest end of the range for his rookie productivity. Now another year in the league, gaining more experience. Josh McDaniels has left New England, but very much so still within that Patriot way in that New England system. He can certainly take a step forward. I'm just not sure where his fully developed ceiling is in in the NFL. I could see him being right around a top 12, top 14 quarterback in the league as soon as this year. I don't know if there's much of a ceiling beyond that for Mac Jones in New England. So a lot of wide receivers right now on the block, Debo Samuel, DK Metcalf, and Terry McLaurin, three of them seeking new contracts. Do you think they'll re-sign with their current teams? And if not, is there a location that you would like to see any of those guys in? Overwhelmingly, I do. Specifically, I think we see Debo and DK return to their current team. Debo is just so integral to that offensive scheme that Kyle Shanahan is running there in San Francisco. And you look at Seattle, they really don't have anywhere else to spend this money, right? He is their best player and the type of player that they want to build around. So those two in particular, I think it's more likely than not that we see them ultimately staying place. Terry McLaurin is an interesting one. That was a name that really jumped out to me. It did not seem like the Washington commanders were going to be keen on paying him what is now the market rate. And so far, it looks like it's playing out that way. In terms of where he lands, that's so difficult to pin down right now. With this uncertainty around wide receivers, 
it seems like NFL front offices are pretty definitively jumping into either side of the camp. They lean into the fact this is a valuable asset and they have to pay in order to have a premier talent at the position, or they want nothing to do with it. And they trade away AJ Brown for resetting the clock on a rookie. So it's hard to get a gauge for which teams are going to be on either side of that spectrum. Ideal case scenario in terms of where I would like to see him play. I'd love to see him pair up with Aaron Rodgers and bring some real power to that wide receiver room Mm. in Green Bay. But that front office, based on how they treated Devontae Adams, probably isn't going to be the most aggressive in that trade market. When you look at fantasy football, what comes out to you as far as uh, a position that doesn't get that recognized that goes on to be successful in winning a league? Like, you know, the running backs got to score touchdowns. You know, wide receivers got to have a lot of yards and a lot of receiving touchdowns. Quarterbacks got to throw touchdowns. Is it a defense that they pick or a field goal kicker? What do you think gets the most unrecognized in being successful? in some of these leagues that's kind of difficult to say right I, I think with that level of granularity it, it largely comes down to sort of the format of the scoring system of the particular league one thing that i think is universally underappreciated is just how additive a quarterback who is capable as a runner is to a fantasy football team you look at jalen hurts depending on scoring format finished between qb2 and qb4 last year yep. and there wasn't a whole lot about his passing attack that was all that prolific but mm-hmm. If he's going to continue to score touchdowns with his feet, if he's going to stack up a moderate day at the office in terms of rushing yards, he goes out and gets you 40 yards rushing. That's the equivalent of a passing touchdown, at least in most formats. The rise of the mobile quarterback has been a theme for the NFL for the last decade and a half or so. But just how much that translates to a successful fantasy the outcome is something that I think is a bit slept on. How do you guys decide that for each league that you're in, the scoring system? Do you guys get to negotiate that? It should be up for negotiation. I carry more leagues than I like to admit on national radio or anything. One of the stipulations for me to take on a new league, there has to be some wrinkle to it. It has to be 14 teams or 16 teams. It has to have a premium for tight end production or... You have to start one running back instead of two. All of the variety of leagues that I carry, there's at least some differentiation from one to the other. So that way, the strategy and kind of the line that I take in trying to win a championship is uh, at least incrementally different from the other leagues that I that I hold. We are talking to co-founder Pros and Joe's Charity League, Eric Romoff. The transition of the AFC West with the Chiefs, the Raiders, McDaniels, and Adams, and the Chargers, and the Broncos. When you look at that division, I think this is probably one of the best divisions we've seen in a very, very long time, where you can predominantly see three out of the four teams make the playoffs. What is the surprise in this division, and what really stands out going into the season? Is it Russell Wilson being a Bronco and revamping that offense, a Bronco offense that hasn't been the same since when Peyton Manning was there? What has really stood out in the AFC West so far this offseason? You're absolutely spot on that it has been an arms race in that division, and I tend to agree. I would not be surprised if we see three teams make the playoffs out of this division in particular. In terms of the largest seismic shift, it's got to be Russell Wilson heading into Denver. Devontae Adams is obviously a big splash. The defensive additions that they've tacked on there for the Chargers make a huge impact. But nothing is going to move the needle like going from some combination of Drew Locke and Teddy Two Gloves to who... I feel should be a Hall of Fame quarterback in Russell Wilson. So it easily is the biggest increase in their position in terms of what they've added to their team. In terms of what that nets them, they get to do all this and fight for third place in that division, but that might be good enough to still make the playoffs. Strategy-wise, you look at drafting running backs early and also guys counter that with the zero running back that a lot of fantasy analysts like to do. And also the tight ends, drafting them early too. A lot of people did that with Travis Kelsey last year and Darren Waller, guys like that. And while the Kelsey still does 
but Wally was kind of streaky. So where do you stand on the strategy aspect of extreme strategies? I'm not the biggest fan of heading in with a definitive strategy, right? I kind of like to play the board a little bit more and try to attack the value as it falls to me. All of these strategies have credence in their own right, but because they're well-documented and well-understood, they also have a pretty clear way to counter it. The best strategy overall is to have a very clear understanding of how you value the players in your drafts and specifically break those player values into tiers and then really just play the, the board as it falls. If there's value that's screaming at you, a guy that is available 5, 8, 12 picks later than they should, it's going to be in your best interest to select that player and then adjust course as the draft goes on. You saw Baltimore last year being at 8-3 and three and Lamar Jackson was considered one of the best quarterbacks winning the MVP a couple years ago and then the struggle that they had toward the end of the year just couldn't seem to win a game and then they wound up falling 8-9. and nine. How do you see Baltimore being part of the AFC North and we know the struggle with Deshaun Washington. Is, is he even going to play and then what that means for Cleveland and then you have Cincinnati and how they came out of nowhere to win the division. Do you see Baltimore being a team that can get back to be where the big boys are in the AFC? I definitely like Baltimore to finish ahead of where they did last season. I think it goes a little bit underrated just how injured Lamar Jackson was down that stretch run. He missed a number of games. He kind of hobbled his way through a, a handful of others. So I think having him back and fully healthy really sets the trajectory for this team. The other thing to consider for me is I think this division gets a little bit softer. The Bengals won the division. They improved their position over the course of the offseason. So I still have them as the favorite to win the AFC North. But ultimately, I think we see the Mitchell Trubisky-led Steelers take a little bit of a step back, and I don't think we see Deshaun Watson right. play much, if at all, this season in Cleveland. The way that the restructuring of his contract yep. played out and how that was what pushed him over the edge to choose Cleveland seems like a pretty big signal that they are expecting him to face some sort of considerable suspension. So mm-hmm. I tend to look at what people do as opposed to what people say, but everything they're doing tells me that it's reasonable to expect that the Browns will be without him for a good chunk of games, if not the entire season. Those two things, I think, create a path for Baltimore this year. I know Peter King said that was probably the worst contract ever given out in the history of football, the situation that Cleveland's made for themselves with Deshaun Watson. Do you see Baker Mayfield maybe even getting, with that uncertainty, them going back to Baker, or is that pretty much done? I think that bridge is entirely burned, which leads to an interesting point about these trade rumors with Carolina. Seemingly, it feels like all paths lead to Baker Mayfield being released out of Cleveland. And so if that's the case, I don't see why anybody would step forward and willingly give away any sort of significant capital to try to acquire a guy that is likely going to be released in a couple weeks, if not a couple months time. We are talking to co-founder of Pros and Joes Charity League, Eric Romoff. The NFC East is so very interesting because we all know how horrible this division is. It's probably the worst division in football. It's crazy to say that. We've seen this back and forth, year in and year out. You got the Cowgirls, who (laughs) really have lost a significant amount of pieces this offseason, reached in the draft in every single category from first, second, third, fourth, fifth. Jerry Jones showing everybody their cards like an idiot after the draft. And the Eagles, I think, have made the biggest leap, adding Jordan Davis, trading for A.J. Brown. Was a playoff team last year, has gotten better in the offseason. Prolific offensive talent like A.J. Brown now coming to the team with Devontae Smith. So what is it with this division? What team look like the team that's going to take over this division moving forward? And is there any 
thought in your mind that this division could turn everything around this year and surprise the world as the worst division in all of football? I don't know if I'd say this is going to be the worst division in all of football. I am a Houston Texans fan. I get direct line of sight to the dumpster fire that is the AFC South. It's certainly not going to be the best. Overall, maybe if you're a Carson Wentz kind of guy, you can argue that the commanders haven't improved their stock over the course of the offseason. But even giving them the benefit of the doubt, Philadelphia has improved their team by leaps and bounds, especially relative to the rest of this division. So it's all going to come down to whether or not we see Jalen Hurts take a year three step forward. And if he does, I think Philadelphia wins this division pretty comfortably. Rookie wide receivers, a lot of them were drafted this year. Now, a lot has changed with the Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase's rookie year. So I'm not saying they necessarily have the years that they had, but could you see any of these guys being like a 2016 Michael Thomas, a 2018 Calvin Ridley, where they're really just the instant impact right away at their ADPs and good value? The important thing to touch on off the top there is just how unprecedented the rookie seasons of Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson over these last few years have been. It feels weird seeing it in back-to-back years, but it is the exception and not the rule. To your broader question, absolutely. I think it ties back into our conversation about the viewpoint of the wide receiver position in the NFL. Many of the teams that decided to spend early first round draft capital on a wide receiver were doing so in direct contrast to paying their already very talented somewhat veteran receiver the new market rate right as opposed to forking out that huge contract they hit the reset button they ship out aj brown and they draft Traylon burks because that's the case i'm expecting this titans front office to really look to continue to inject young wide receiver talent as opposed to eventually pay that second contract. So they very much so have a direct incentive and everything they've told us about their philosophy around the position says that they are going to make Traylon Burks an immediate part of this offense. I think a very similar case is in Atlanta with Drake London, Calvin Ridley, who's suspended for the entire year. Maybe that gets reduced a bit, but those are two guys that I think are going to immediately have a considerable opportunity. And all of these front offices are racing against the clock until these rookie ride receivers ask for or demand their second contract. So they're going to try to get the most out of them while they're still relatively affordable. Packers, Buccaneers, you look at these two teams, Aaron Rodgers, who's won back-to-back MVPs, no Devontae Adams. They bring in a wide receiver in a second round, Christian Watson, who a lot of people like. I think he's still a reach. You would think with the two first-round draft picks, they would move up for one of those wide receivers. They all fell from 8 to really 16, and they were gone off the board, so they couldn't really make a move for a big wide receiver. And there was really nothing they could do in the offseason to bring in like an Odell Beckham because you don't know when he's coming back or anybody else because there was nobody available and they weren't going to trade anything for Tyreek Hill because they can't overpay for him because they overpaid for their quarterback who I think is the best quarterback in the NFL and makes everybody around him better. And then Tom Brady coming back, retires, he doesn't retire. He's back again, ladies and gentlemen, with this team. And this team really didn't lose that many pieces. Leonard Fournette looks like he's trying to go to the Patriots. Now he's not going to the Patriots. I don't know what the hell is going on with some of the players, but this team is back with these two quarterbacks. Do you think that these two quarterbacks can make a run again this year to go for another Super Bowl? It's tough. I certainly think that they are going to be contenders to come out of the NFC. I gave up on trying to play the father time card against Tom Brady like a decade ago, so I'm not going to start saying that now. The overwhelming majority of the pieces are back there in Tampa Bay. 
arguably the biggest question mark in terms of getting back to last year's roster is Rob Gronkowski. And at least all indications are he's going to party over the course of the summer and stumble back (laughs) into camp somewhere midway through the preseason. So I expect to see him back in Tampa Bay. Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, even if they were to have selected one of the top early first round wide receivers, it is almost impossible to replace a talent like Devontae Adams. Christian Watson has some incredibly large shoes to fill. I don't think we see quite as prolific a passing game out of Green Bay as we have in seasons past, but I do think that we still see a very efficient passing offense. I think we see Aaron Rodgers distributing the ball to a number of different players, including Aaron Jones, I think will take a step forward as a receiver out of the backfield. And ultimately, this offense will be very effective for Green Bay as well. A sleeper you love and a guy that people love that you think is going to be a reach this year, a bad pick. I guess I'll start with the latter. As a result of Marquise Hollywood Brown being traded to the Arizona Cardinals, Rashad Bateman's stock has absolutely skyrocketed. He is a very capable sophomore wide receiver. There's a lot of things to like about his skill set and about his game. But the thing that I think is being overlooked is that the reason why Hollywood Brown wanted out of Baltimore is just how underutilized the passing game is and specifically the passing game to wide receivers. So Bateman is very much so the one in Baltimore, but that's not going to lead to the typical workload that we associate with a wide receiver one in today's NFL. So I think he's going a little bit too high. In terms of some of my sleepers, over the last couple of weeks, I've found myself getting a lot of Ezekiel Elliott. He's really started to slip into kind of the mid-fourth round pretty consistently. And while I don't think we see the Zeke of a couple years ago, he still had over a 1,000 yards. He was one of seven guys to surpass his touch volume that he did last year. And he was doing most of that while banged up. So there's no line better. They're certainly getting healthier. He has the offseason to get healthy. So to be able to scoop up a guy that should have 60, 65% of the workload behind one of the better offensive lines in the league, happy to do that midway through the fourth. You rewind a few weeks prior, Darnell Mooney coming off of his 140 targets last year in an offense that was allowing Justin Fields to throw the ball like 12 times a game. He was slipping well into the seventh and eighth rounds. Now his ADP has started to climb back up. So less value there, but a guy that I still love targeting and think very much so as a wide receiver two that potentially has wide receiver one upside if Justin Fields takes a step forward this year. The best thing to really do is just keep an eye on where these guys are being drafted, right? Jump into best ball drafts, jump into mock drafts, and really use that as an opportunity to gauge the market and how the market feels about a player. And anytime that a player moves considerably in one way or the other, is usually an indicator that something has changed in terms of public perception, and you can probably take advantage of that. Well, we really appreciate you giving us a half an hour. We want to give them enough time on our show where they can get out all the information and all the different things that they're doing, not only with their charity work or some of the sponsors and advertisements that they do, but everything that you do with what you're great at in fantasy sports. So thank you for joining us. Tell the fans how they can find you, Eric. Best way to find me is on Twitter. That's at FantasyNav. Uh, I contribute for DrRoto.com, for GoingFor2.com. I have a new project we spun up a few months ago called Green Screens Media, but all of that is consolidated and rolled up into my Twitter handle, which is at FantasyNav. We really appreciate you joining us. We'll get you on very, very soon. You're great. Thank you for all the information, and he's the co-founder of Pros and Joe's Charity League, Eric Romoff. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me on, guys. The great... 
Eric Romoff, fantastic interview. Gave us so much inside information, not only in fantasy football, but what he thinks could happen in the NFL season. Fantastic. Very knowledgeable guy. Charity leagues, too. Getting all the fantasy community involved in some very good causes. When we come back, some baseball conversation as the Yankees and the Mets are scolding hot. When we come back, we'll get into that here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, as you know. This is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Errol Marks. My co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, kill us on our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time. Only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network. Brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app like on iOS, WWSRN, or Android. World Wide Sports Radio Network. The Mets are playing great baseball right now. Even though they have some significant injuries with Max Scherzer, Jacob DeGrom, they lost McGill the other day to a shoulder injury, but Bassett and this pitching staff has been pretty damn good without their two superstars. This lineup has been as good as any National League lineup in baseball. Peter Alonso right now, to me, is the MVP of the National League. He leads the league in RBIs. He's almost second and third in every single offensive category except batting average. He's been sensational. McNeil has been unbelievable. Unbelievable. He leads the team in batting average. It's been unbelievable. He's back ever since the Rojas era. And also, they're getting timely hitting from guys like Nimmo, who's been unbelievable in the outfield. To me, he's the gold glove right now in all of baseball at center field. He's been sensational. And bringing in Marte, who everybody thought was going to be the starting center fielder for this Met team, he's one of the more talented center fielders in baseball. They moved him to left and right field because Nimmo has been just unbelievable. He's been lights out in center field. So they've been sensational, Speedy. There's really nothing to say bad about them. Coming back the way they did against Milwaukee on Thursday, it was unbelievable. No Met fan probably thought they were going to come back. And they just have been very, very good week in and week out. And as the season progresses, their schedule is one of the easiest in baseball. So that says a lot about this team and where this team is going. Yeah, very complete lineup so far this year. Really the only bad part has been the catching position. Just haven't gotten a lot of production there. And Eduardo Escobar's kind of up and down, but there's seven deep beyond that. Starling Marte's had a great year. Like you were saying, not playing as much center field, mostly playing right field. Initially at the start of the season, it was because he's the strongest arm and the Mets don't have a lot of strong outfield arms, so they were using it there. But he's still been playing well. Brandon Nimmo being as steadily good as he's been in center field has just been a blessing for the Mets. He has a 791 OPS right now, 370 on base percentage. Not really known as the power type, but still 21 RBIs and still doing a great job in the leadoff spot, and his defense has been outstanding. Something that he wasn't really great in in center field. He was always good as a defensive corner outfielder, but now has really upped his game there as well. Jeff McNeil rebirthed again from hitting from batting average. Again, not the power guy, but that was always his trouble. When he tried to pull the ball too much, when Rojas came in, that was his big issue. And Pete Alonso right now hitting 280, 18 home runs, 59 RBIs, home runs and RBI leader in the National League right now. OPS of 905, having a fantastic year. As far as the pitchers, they might be getting Max Scherzer back soon. He just threw his bullpen session this week. They lost Tyler McGill. He's a right shoulder strain. He'll be out probably two weeks, three weeks, but they could be getting Jacob DeGrom back before the All-Star break too, so we'll see what kind of moves they have to make. Bassett, 
and Taiwan Walker will have to weather the storm in the meantime. Hopefully David Peterson can pitch a little better. And Buck Showalter, he knows what he's doing with these pitchers. He'll manage them well. The dominance of New York baseball has been unbelievable. Who would have thought that the Mets right now would be leading in the National League, being the dominant force right now in the National League? Everybody thought it was going to be the Dodgers bringing Friedman in. And with that lineup, possibly one of the greatest lineups in baseball history. Well, it hasn't been as good as everybody expected it to be so far, 60, 70 games into the season. Padres are leading the division right now. It's unbelievable. And then on the other side with the Bronx, the Yankees have been extraordinary. They have been as good as anybody could have thought. This pitching staff right now leads the league in almost every single pitching category when it comes to the starting rotation. Nasty Cortez and Garrett Cole and Montgomery and Savarino. They've been sensational. All five guys have been ridiculous. This could be right now record-breaking numbers moving forward as the season progressively goes. They're not giving runs. They're not giving up any hits. They swept. Yes, they swept the Tampa Bay Rays. They swept the Cubs last week. What this team has done at home has been unbelievable. They could break the home record having 65 wins in one season. Right now, where the Yankees are and the position that they're in, you're definitely realizing now that Brian Cashman isn't in over his head. That all the fans should give an apology to Brian Cashman. For all those guys thinking that Max Scherzer should have been a Yankee. Max Scherzer's on the DL right now. For all those guys saying that the Yankees' bullpen didn't do enough in the offseason. Bringing up King and Schmidt. Making the trade for Holmes at the trade deadline. Which, by the way, hasn't given up a run in 29 innings. Which he broke Mariano Rivera's record. You know, he's given up one run all year. <laughs> His ERA is 0.30. I mean, it's ridiculous. The way this bullpen is played, there is not a better bullpen right now in baseball. And then there's this lineup that is scolding hot. Aaron Judge, who has 25 home runs, he leads the league in almost every offensive statistic except one, RBIs, OPS, on-base percentage, walks, batting average for a power hitter, 316. Everybody thought he was a power hitter. He's a 5 tool player, great defensive player. Aaron Judge is the MVP right now of baseball. I'm talking about all of baseball, even better than the National League. He is the best player right now in all of baseball. Even better than Mike Trout, Soto, Pete Alonso. Machado, any one of these guys. If you were to look at statistics right now, Aaron Judge is the best player. Rizzo's hitting. Giancarlo Stanton's hitting. Torres is hitting. This whole lineup, every single player in this lineup is starting to hit. DJ LeMayu, who's starting to hit for average. Last year had an offseason, starting to hit better. Josh Donaldson needs to wake up. We'll figure out what's going on with him. Their catchers are hitting. Trevino's hitting. Higashioka is hitting after starting off slow as he did in the beginning of the season. If you're a Yankee fan right now today, you should be very excited. They could break the record. They could win 120 games this year. Aaron Boone is going to be the first manager in Major League history in his first five years to have not one, not two, but three 100-win seasons. Every Yankee fan wanted to run this guy out in the offseason, except yours truly, who didn't. This team is playing and moving in every kind of way that you should be excited about where this team is heading. What makes a good GM is finding these gems, and the Yankees have continued to Carpenter. do that. Carpenter! That was the first one I was going to get to. <laughs> good that you brought that up. 412 on base percentage since he's come to the Yankees. has hit six home runs already. A slugging percentage of 964. Obviously small sample size, but 1.376 OPS. And has been a spark as a DH. He's played a little bit of first base. He's played a little bit of second base. The catch-up position, like you were saying, with Trevino, hitting 291 this year. Already has tied his career single-season home run total with five already for the Yankees. And you don't get that from the catching position in all of baseball very often. And you look at the depth that this Yankee team has— 
it's not something like they've had before. Usually they had the depth on paper, but some of it was hurt and it was so streaky. And now you could trust everybody all at once. Glaber Torres, 12 home runs, 28 RBIs. Aaron Judge, like you're saying, MVP of baseball right now, 25 home runs, OPS of 1.063 right now. The only thing he doesn't lead in right now is RBIs. He has 49 right now, which trails Pete Alonso and also Jose Ramirez. But everything else he's doing fantastic in. Rizzo, Stanton, they just have everything. And it's just doing well with the little things. And then the pitching. They have depth of veterans and youngsters in that bullpen doing well. You mentioned Holmes having that fantastic year, 0.29 ERA. One earned run allowed this year, which is insane. Clark Schmidt has been fantastic. How about some of the veterans, though? Wandy Peralta as a good lefty type. He's pitched 24 innings, 1.5 ERA so far for him. They brought in Miguel Castro from the Mets. He's been pretty good for the most part. Strikeout guy. They have a good mixture of everything. Garrett Cole has the worst ERA in the rotation at 3.33. That shows how much depth they have in that rotation. Garrett Cole right now is probably going to be a Cy Young candidate. Right now, it doesn't show that way, but I believe as he progressively moves forward in the second half of the season, he's going to get better. With what they have with Cortez and Tyone and everybody else that they have, this roster and this pitching staff could only get better if they go after some pieces at the trade deadline. And I believe Brian Cashman is not done. He is not done. I'm sure he doesn't think he is done, and this team is ready yet to win. So, if you're a Yankee fan, you should be very, very excited. With the Mets and the Yankees dominant in the American League East, and that is the hardest division to play in in all of baseball. And they're 30 games over 500. And that says a lot when you have a Tampa Bay team that's probably going to make the playoffs. A Blue Jays team that's probably going to make the playoffs. A Red Sox team that's probably going to make the playoffs. And then you have the Yankees that are just completely dominating that division. Now, does that mean they're going to win the World Series? No, it doesn't. And anything could happen in baseball. A team could get into the playoffs, get hot, or they can make a trade at the trade deadline and just completely dominate all the way through. But there's something about this team that we have not seen since 2009. I think this is a special team. I do think this could be the year that we see the Yankees play in the World Series. Talk about Cy Young. The Yankees also scored four runs off of Cy Young candidate for the Rays and Shane McClanahan on Wednesday. So it shows a lot about how well-rounded their offense is. And as far as the Yankees and the Mets collectively, both of them had the best record in their respective leagues in 2006. Maybe it gets to that face again. Again. Yeah, we'll see what happens. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, Speedy, what do we got? Crunch time! Here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Errol Marks. My co-host, Speedy PD. Remember, Killers on show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network. Brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, WWSRN, or Android. World Wide Sports Radio Network. It's been a great show. Thank you to Eric Romoff for joining us. Moneyline Mania as they are nailing their picks every single week. Guys. They've moved up to 80% again. They've been sensational since we brought them in four months ago. They've been unbelievable with their picks every single week from Wes and Chaz and Hector and Johns. All of them. They've been sensational. It's been unbelievable. And Speedy, we call this Crunch Time. It's time for Crunch Time. All right, let's start with the Stanley Cup. Buy or sell, the Stanley Cup will go seven games. Absolutely 
not. I'm going to sell that. I really think this is the Avalanche series to lose. I think this could go five or six. I think that the Avalanche are that much better than this year's Tampa Bay Lightning team, so I'm going to sell it. I'm going to buy it. I have Avalanche in seven. That was my pick from the start. I think they benefit in a longer series. I could definitely see six. I don't think Tampa's going to go away that easily to see it as being a five, but I think they will go seven, and I'm going to go Colorado in seven. All right, buy or sell. The Knicks will trade into the top five of the NBA draft. It's not something the Knicks do every single year, so it's a possibility. But if they do that, they're not getting Donovan Mitchell. So I'm going to sell that. I think they're heavily interested in Donovan Mitchell. I don't see the Knicks doing that. I'm going to sell it, too. I think they're going to trade maybe a little bit up. I'm thinking more for Mathurin. I think the Jaden Ivey rumors are only recently. I think a lot of these teams are committed to that. And, yes, it might be easy to place Vladi Divac on the Kings. But beyond that, that would probably be the only chance of it happening. So I am going to sell it as well. All right, buy or sell. The Mets will trade for a starting pitcher with Miguel back on the I.L. Absolutely not. I think they go after bullpen help. That's something they desperately need. The Mets right now have a tremendous amount of draft stock. I think they're going to continue building that farm system as Uncle Stevie keeps opening up his pockets. They need to do something to save some kind of money. So I'm going to sell it. I'm going to sell it too. Previous regime, I would have thought it maybe with the Will Ponds and the other GMs. They love to trade for veteran starters, but not this one. I think they'll trade for a bullpen arm, a guy that can be versatile. So I will sell it. All right, buy or sell. Baker Mayfield will be traded somewhere else other than the Panthers. I'm going to sell it. He either stays with the Browns or he goes to the Panthers. It makes a lot of sense why the Panthers want him. With a coach right now on the hot seat, it makes a lot of sense. So I am going to sell it. I'm going to sell it, too. I think the Browns are going to mess this up, and he's going to end up being stuck there and then hold out and make it very, very dramatic for what we know as a dysfunctional franchise with the Browns. So I'm going to sell it. All right, buy or sell. Somebody other than Nathan McKinnon or Nikita Kucherov will lead the Stanley Cup in points. I'm going to sell that. I think both players are just fantastic. Kucherov, who's been unbelievable. I know a lot of people think Brady Point, he's been out too long. He's been out for two series. I think if Brady Point played throughout the playoffs, I think it would be Brady Point. But I can't see it, so I'm going to sell it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to go Ronson in on this one. I think he's a guy that definitely, when he gets going, he gets hot in bunches in the postseason. We saw Landis Gock have his bunch already against the Blues. I think it's Rontanen's time. I think he'll lead in points. And he's a very good passer for a winger, too. So I am going to buy it. All right, buy or sell. Both Joe Girardi and Joe Madden and will not get managerial jobs next year. I'm going to believe that. Here's the thing. Joe Madden has jumped from one spot to the other spot to the other spot. It hasn't worked out, and it seems like he clashes with GMs and owners, so I can't see him. And Joe Girardi, let's be honest, it was a horrible job he put out there with Philadelphia. And look what Philadelphia is doing ever <laughs> since Joe Girardi is gone. They're winning. So that doesn't bode well for Joe Girardi. So I am going to buy that. I'm going to buy it too and it's only because of the recent comments that Mike Trout and Jared Walsh were making about Joe Madden. They actually didn't like playing for him which we always thought of Joe Madden as a guy that always did well with the players. Players liked playing for him. Maybe not this era of players. Joe Girardi we know the Yankees that was a big reason that he left initially was because Gary Sanchez but Joe Madden now getting it too. I could definitely believe that so I am going to buy it. Alright buy or sell. Somebody other than Chet Holmgren will be drafted number one overall by the Orlando Magic. I'm going to sell it. I think Chet's going one. Everybody thinks that Unless you're the Orlando Magic and you just think so highly of somebody else and it surprised the world, I can't see it happen. So I am going to sell that. Yeah, I'm going to sell it. So I think all the rumors have definitely leaned towards that. Orlando hasn't had the luck of getting that number one pick. I think they're going to really nail the guy that they really like. So I'm going to sell it as well. All right, buy or sell. Barry Trotz will be a head coach of somebody other than the Winnipeg Jets. 
I'm going to buy it. I think it's the Boston Bruins. I've been saying that for a while. I know Jeff doesn't really like that. But Barry Trotz goes over there to Boston, helps out a team that's right now depleted with injury all the way till January. And I, I think there's only one coach that can help out that Boston Bruins team with injuries the way they are defensively. I'm going to buy that. He's going to be coaching somewhere else. No, I'm going to sell it. I've picked Winnipeg from the start. When they were good, they were physical. That's what Barry Trotz likes to bring. I know they don't have the same amount of forwards. They traded Line A. They traded Andrew Kopp since then and Truba. But still, I think that system is what they like. And then that's where they were good at. So I think they're going to bring it back. Barry Trotz to Winnipeg. All right, buy or sell. We will see another defensive player making $30-plus million a year within the next three years, like the contract Aaron Donald just got. I'm going to buy it because once you see it once, you see it again, maybe even more. Donald's been unbelievable and he showed himself in the Super Bowl. He was a dominant force in the fourth quarter. I could see it. I could see a team so desperately wanting to keep that player where he is, so I'm going to buy it. I'm going to sell it. I think everyone that would have gotten it, I think already has gotten paid. You saw TJ Watt get it 28.5. Miles Garrett got 27. I just don't know if there's anyone else worth it at that point. Chase Young was a young pass rusher drafted. Who's going to be that next guy? Nick Bosa got his contract already. I just don't know who it's going to be, and I don't think it's going to be a secondary player, so I am going to sell it. All right, one more. Nestor Cortez will keep his ERA under two into the month of July. It's right now at 1.94. Absolutely buy it. I think he's been sensational. He has been the surprise of that rotation. Him and Tyone have been fantastic. Two guys that I believe will make the All-Star team. And really two guys that nobody would have expected. But yes, I buy it 100%. He's the real deal this year. It's right on the brink. So I'm going to sell it. I think it'll just drop off a little over two. I think it's bound to happen at some point. We were talking about it with sample size with Ryan Spader when we had him on the show a few weeks ago. I think it's just bound to happen. It's not going to go drastically over two. It might be 2.0. Eight, might be 2.1, but I think it'll eventually get over that because it's going to be hard to keep that up at this point in the season. So I am going to sell it. Well, it was a great show. Thank you to Mr. Romoff, who was fantastic, giving us his insight, not only with football fantasy, his charity work, but the NFL season as a whole. Thank you to Chaz and his crew over there, his handicappers. Moneyline Mania is here to stay, and they're fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Speedy, thank you to you. We're back. We're ready to just burst on the sports scene here in New York and Long Island, as we've been doing for the last past year and a half. If you haven't listened to us, keep listening to us every single Saturday. We are the voices of Long Island and sports. Definitely continue listening to us, as we'll be back next week. Until then, this is Errol Marks, Speedy Petey, saying goodnight, and we'll talk to you then. Good night, everybody.